questions and answers. We've seen movies and read books and dreamed of what heaven would really look like. But are all accounts that we hear about factual? How do we know? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat is sharing a message entitled, Trips to Heaven and Back, Are They for Real? If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's our host, Dr. Pat Zucran, with part two. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and provide biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, we're continuing our series on trips to heaven and hell. There are dozens of books and movies out there on people who have allegedly died and went to heaven or hell and have returned to tell us about it. What do we make of these accounts? As Christians, should we embrace these accounts or should we approach them very cautiously? One of the things that I discussed previously, and let me do a quick review, there's two kinds of death. There's biological death and there's what we call NDEs or near-death experiences. And biological death, biblically speaking, that's when the soul and spirit permanently separate from the body. Okay? They permanently separate and you're not coming back from biological death. Near-death experiences is when people are declared medically or clinically dead. There's no physical signs of life, no heartbeat, pulse, or brain activity. And these are near-death experiences. You're, you're not biologically dead. If you're biologically dead, you're not coming back. Okay? Near-death experiences is when they are medically dead. All right. Most of these accounts of going to heaven or hell and back, they're either visions that people have had or they're near-death experiences, right? So those are some things we need to understand. And we also stated that near-death experiences, there's too many accounts where people can accurately describe what was going on around them or nearby. And so they don't necessarily prove that there's a heaven or a hell because those facts are hard to verify. But when there's facts that we can verify, you know, what was going on in the operating room, what was going on outside in the lobby or miles away at a house or on the rooftop of the hospital, those are facts we can verify. And there have been numerous accounts of people accurately describing things that were going on while they were medically or clinically dead on the hospital bed there. And so near-death experiences do not necessarily prove there's a heaven or a hell, but indeed they seem to confirm what the Bible teaches. There is an immaterial essence within us. We call this the soul. The Bible calls this the soul. Our mind, emotions, our will, our personalities, that the immaterial essence in us that survives the death of the physical body as an individual in a fully conscious state. And as I stated previously, it's the Christian worldview that best accommodates these near-death experiences. Because the Bible teaches, indeed, that there is, is an immaterial essence in us. The Bible calls it the soul. That in the Bible, in biblical anthropology, we are made up of body, spirit, and soul. And so the Christian worldview 
can accommodate near-death experiences. Atheism or naturalism has trouble doing so. That poses a problem for this worldview because when you die, you're simply chemistry encased in flesh. So there shouldn't be any kind of conscious activity whatsoever. Yet there's too many medical accounts of people existing consciously and explaining things around them. Pantheism has some trouble because you're supposed to be absorbed into the impersonal cosmic energy of the universe. So we should not be experiencing a conscious individual experience, yet many do. And I believe it's the biblical worldview that can best accommodate these near-death experiences. Now, what about those who say they've gone to heaven and hell in a vision or these near-death experiences and have returned? I stated we need to approach these with tremendous caution, all right? The principle to remember is this. The Bible alone is the authority when it comes to our understanding of heaven and hell. No matter how compelling and sincere these people may be and how compelling their experience may be, it must be subject indeed to the Bible and the Word of God. If it doesn't match up, we need to be very cautious about their accounts. Also remember that these are near-death experiences. They are not biologically dead. So their accounts must match up with the Word of God, no matter how sincere the person may be. If their account doesn't match up with Scripture, then we should be very cautious in accepting their accounts. Now, the Bible teaches that those who die and go to heaven or hell do not return. Proverbs 30, verse 4, John 3, 13. And in the Bible, there's only about four or five people, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, John, and I believe Moses. So only about four or five people who were given a vision of hell and, and tell us something about it. Now, in many of these visions or near-death experiences about people who have gone to heaven and back, I am very cautious because in these accounts, they do not mention the throne of God. And in the Bible, the throne of God is central to heaven. All right, God is the centerpiece of heaven and the throne of God is the centerpiece of heaven and everything in heaven revolves around the throne of God. All those who went to heaven, that's the very first thing they see. Isaiah had this incredible vision of the throne of God and the cherubim and the seraphim circling the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy. Ezekiel sees the same thing, right? John, when he goes to heaven, that's the first thing he sees is Jesus Christ in his full glorified state and this incredible majestic throne of God. That's the centerpiece of heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, John writes this, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like a creature like an ox, the third 
the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he has a vision of heaven, that's the first thing the prophet Isaiah sees is the throne of God. It says in chapter 6 of Isaiah, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew in. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woes me for I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Ezekiel chapter one, he sees the throne of God. He sees the angels circling the throne and he Uh, gives a remarkable description of the throne of God and the angelic beings that circle the throne. And he says here, Above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in the appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it was the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the experience of likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And so the prophets and the apostle John, when they were given a glimpse of heaven, the first thing that they saw was the throne of God, the majestic, awesome throne of God. And their first response was to fall down and worship. In a lot of these alleged trips to heaven and back, it's missing the throne of God. And I find that a bit disturbing because that is the centerpiece of heaven. Heaven is all about God. You can't go anywhere in heaven and avoid God. The throne of God is what heaven is all about. It is the centerpiece of heaven. That's why those who don't want God now, God will allow them to be separated from him forever in a place called hell. Because you can't say, well, I want eternal life. I want heaven, but I don't want anything to do with God. So I want to go to heaven. I want to be in the corner somewhere where I won't run into God. Well, That's impossible in heaven because heaven is all about God and being in the very presence of God and the throne of God is the centerpiece of heaven. All of heaven revolves around the throne of God. And so I find a bit disturbing when there are alleged accounts of people who have gone to heaven and we don't get a description of the throne of God. That's the first thing these prophets and apostles write of when they go to heaven. They see the throne of God. Second, Jesus also is the centerpiece of heaven. John writes about the glorified Christ there in heaven. The prophets write about someone that looked like the Son of Man there in heaven. And in many books, 
that depict Jesus in heaven. Many of these books about people who have ascended to heaven and back, Jesus is depicted in his earthly form and is easily approached. Yet John the Apostle, and remember, John is perhaps the one who is closest to Jesus. He is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he has perhaps maybe the closest relationship of all the apostles to Jesus. When he sees Jesus in his glory in heaven, he writes this. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first, and I am the last. So in the Bible, when John sees the glorified Christ, he sees him in his full glory there, and his reaction is to fall and worship, for now he is in awe and senses the holiness of God and his unworthiness. However, in many of these accounts of people going to heaven and back, if they many of them are void of seeing the throne of God, and many of them are void of seeing Jesus. That's what heaven is all about. It's about God and it's about Christ. And if many of these run into Jesus, he's described as easily approached in, you know, his physical form like he was upon the earth. Yet here we have the glorified Christ there in heaven. And John's response, who was the closest to Jesus while Jesus was on earth, was to fall down and worship the glorified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And so in many of these accounts, the description of heaven, void of these two and giving a a different kind of description of Jesus than what John did in Revelation 1, has me questioning these accounts. And then remember In the Bible, there's a remarkable similarity between the men, prophets, and the apostles who went to heaven. Their accounts are very similar. They all see the throne of God and the Son of Man in His full glory. Yet in the heaven and hell stories that are written about, we see them contradicting one another. Those who allegedly went to heaven and hell and have returned, their stories are different and even contradictory to one another. William Alnor, man who has spent a lot of time studying these issues, writes this, The stories are confusing and at times partly due to their mystical nature, but they are usually contradictory on significant details. Out of all the stories I've examined, there were no perfect matches. In other words, one man's picture of heaven did not correlate with the pictures given to us by any other. You know, in contrast to that, the heavenly visions of Ezekiel 1 and such as Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, there's a remarkable similarity there. Now, let's take a look at some of the most popular books written about people who went to heaven and have come back. Now, the book that perhaps, you know, started this revolution was the best-selling book by Betty Eady called Embraced by the Light. Now, this became a best-selling book for several years in the early 90s. And I remember going to several funerals where many, even Christians, 
were quoting from this book here, Embraced by the Light. But I think this one, we should pretty much reject her account. For her, many of the things she says she experienced contradict the scripture. For example, in her conversation with Jesus, Jesus teaches that all religions teach truth and that there are other ways to heaven besides Jesus. She writes here in her book, Why didn't God give us only one church, one pure religion? The answer came to me with the purest of understanding. Each of us, I was told, is at a different level of spiritual development and understanding. Each person is therefore prepared for a different level of spiritual knowledge. All religions upon the earth are necessary because there are people who need what they teach. People in one religion may not have a complete understanding of the Lord's gospel and never will have while in that religion, but that religion is used as a stepping stone to further knowledge. Each church fulfills spiritual needs that perhaps others cannot fill. No one church can fulfill everybody's needs at every level. As an individual raises his level of understanding about God and his own eternal progress, he might feel discontented with the teaching of his present church and seek a different philosophy or religion to fill that void. When this occurs, he has reached another level of understanding and will long for further truth and knowledge and for another opportunity to grow. And at every step of the way, these new opportunities to learn will be given. Having received this knowledge, I knew that we have no right to criticize any church or religion in any way. They are all precious and important in his sight. Well, this would contradict the teachings of Jesus and the apostles throughout the New Testament. Jesus clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In Acts 4.12, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this teaching that indeed there are other ways to heaven besides Jesus would contradict the teachings of Christ. Then in her writings, her belief in premortal existence, which is part of her Mormonism, comes out. And she says this All people as spirits in the premortal world took part in the creation of the earth. We were thrilled to be part of it. We were with God, and we knew that He created us and that we were His own, very own children. She goes on to say, I saw that in the premortal world, we knew about and even chose our missions in life. I understood that our stations in life are based upon the objectives of those missions. Through divine knowledge, we knew what many of our tests and experiences would be, and we prepared accordingly. We bonded with others, family members, and friends to help us complete our missions. Then we watched as the earth was created. We watched as our spirit brothers and sisters entered physical bodies for their turns upon the earth. So she talks about this pre-mortal existence where we existed as spirit babies or spirit beings in another existence and then entered into our fleshly human bodies. Well, that would contradict biblical teaching. We don't come into existence until conception. Our being is formed in the womb. Before that, we don't exist in some kind of pre-mortal experience. Zechariah 12.1 says, The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, 
and who forms the spirit of a man within him. Right? So the spirit is formed as we are developing there in the womb. We don't have a pre-mortal existence here. That would be Mormonism. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 46 says, The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. So Paul is saying that our immaterial essence, our soul and our spirit is formed at conception, as we are developing in the womb, we are created. So we come into existence at conception. That's where our spirit and soul is formed. We do not have a pre-mortal existence. That's her Mormonism coming through. Then also her new age seems to come through. She said this in a 2020 interview there in 1984. She said, I learned while in heaven, that we are all divine by nature. Each and every one of us is divine, perfect. But when we come down to earth, we become mutated. Well, the Bible clearly doesn't teach that all are divine. Isaiah 44, 45, 46 clearly teach that really there's only one God and we are all created beings of that eternal God. And then she talks about a post-mortem salvation, that after death of the physical body, one has an opportunity to be saved. She says, because of the lack of knowledge or belief, some spirits are virtual prisoners of this earth. Some who die as atheists are those who have bonded to the world through greed, bodily appetites, or earthly commitments find it difficult to move on and they become earthbound. They often lack the faith and power to reach for, or in some cases even recognize the energy and light that pulls us towards God. These spirits stay on earth until they learn to accept the greater power around them and to let go of the world. And they reside there as long as they want to it in its love and warmth, accepting the healing influence, but eventually they learn to move on to accept the greater warmth and security of God. Whether we learn of Jesus Christ here or while in the Spirit, we must eventually accept Him and surrender to His love. So she teaches some kind of pluralism that everyone will eventually get saved, but they remain here upon this earth until they accept the love of Jesus. Well, that would contradict what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for every man and woman to die once and then comes the judgment. So your eternal destiny is based on the decisions you make for Christ here upon this earth. After physical death, there is no second chance. In Luke chapter 13, it teaches the story of the ten virgins. They were told to prepare, for we, you do not know when the groom will appear for his bride. Well, five are wise and have extra oil for their lamps. Five are unwise and do not have extra oil. When the groom suddenly appears, the five without extra oil are out of oil and have to run in the middle of the night and find somewhere where they can get oil. When they finally find it, they come to the banquet and it says that the master had locked the door and they were not allowed in. It was too late. So according to the Bible here, there is no second chance after death. And finally, Betty Edie teaches that at death, the spirits remain on earth or they can move on. She says, at the time of death, we are given the choice to remain on this earth until our bodies are buried or to move on, as I did, to the level to which our spirit had grown. 
Well, that would contradict biblical teaching too. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In Luke chapter 16, it's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And when both died, Lazarus immediately went to go to be in paradise in Abraham's bosom, while the rich man immediately was in torment and in hell. They weren't remaining upon the earth, and then they made the decision to move on or not. No, they were immediately judged, and their eternal destiny was determined. Lazarus immediately went to paradise, and the rich man went to hell. And so for these reasons, Betty Edie's experience contradicts clearly biblical teachings and so I would reject her teaching regarding her experience to heaven and back and I believe that's what we need to do those who allegedly go to heaven and return or have visions of going to heaven and return we need to approach them cautiously for the scripture is our authority not the experience we'll talk some more about some of the popular books and movies that have come out about people who've gone to heaven and hell and back when we come back together here on Evidence and Answers. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, as well as Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh,